Hello and welcome to the ET PhD team podcast, the podcast here to help you with your relationship with food and body by giving you evidence-based techniques to support yourself with a sprinkling of feminism, a dash of dismantling diet culture and a side of vulnerability as we share our own messy lives with you. I'm Emilia, a registered nutritionist and PhD with the sole purpose of making your life happier and healthier. If you love it, please do go wild and share it. And if you're ready for support with our coaching, details are in the show notes. Hello and welcome to episode number 270 of the ETPHD team podcast with myself and Steph. Hi Steph, how are you? I am okay. How are you? I am also okay, thank you. And (laughs) Anna, how are you? I'm gonna go with good. I'm good, thanks. Oh. Yeah, I know. On a Thursday as well, something's going wrong. <laughs> or is everything just going right? Do you know what I think it's the dentist told me I had good oral hygiene and I have never been more proud of myself <laughs> for the last year's work. <laughs> I was like, yes, nailed it. Congratulations, yeah. There's nothing yeah. better than a good compliment from the dentist or from the doctor, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. My yeah. day started a bit rubbish because I got my timings wrong and I made a bit of a mistake. And it was, you know, when you're just like, oh, it's a bit soul crushing. And then I kept seeing like angel numbers, you know, like 1111 and 2222 and 33 or whatever. And I was just thinking, look, angels, huns, I could have done with your help before. You could have prompted me that I had a call booked in earlier. You know, and I was a bit annoyed. I was like, thank you for your support and showing me love. But I messed up this morning. So that was me. Maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe there's a reason for that. But we just don't know what that reason is yet. You know, I'm Thanks. sure like serendipity and all that. Like maybe you missing the meeting meant that. I can't think of a potential great outcome for that yet, but I'm sure there is one. It's just my brain's not going there. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe the angel numbers were less mocking, more reassurance. And yeah, we, we've got you, Steph. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> mm. Mm. Well, I'm very pleased that you're great, Anna. And um, Steph and I will just kind of scurry along beside you for the next hour. I've realised I've all... I'll just... you both, don't worry. It's fine. That, fab. that would be fab. I um, realised I forgot to plug my microphone in too, so I apologise for that. But now it's too late, so... You know, we just can't, we can't do everything in life. Mm. And obviously that's one thing I can like slide. Um, okay, Do I just um saw a reel from a big podcast about this man who, I don't know if you've seen it, about this guy who's, tr- who's trying to prolong his life. It's like a biohacker man. And he's talking... Not Chris Hemsworth then. Not Chris Hemsworth, <laughs> no. This man who, uh, I don't know what his name is, but he's basically saying that he's... He has um, hacked his life. What he there's a big push, I think, about what he eats. So I we might listen to it. Um, and he's managed to prolong his life, its life expectancy so far by thirty percent, which I worked out was twenty years. If you're going to get, if you're going to live till eighty, so that's quite a long time. Not sure how they've measured that. Um, but he said on it, like on that really, he was like, well, if I can do it, anyone can do it. And he's like this white man who clearly has enough money to get Botox and fillers, which is fine. You do you. Um, also, just a man. And so someone had commented, like, oh, I bet you don't have any kids. It's like, he does have a son. He's used his son's blood to... to. Oh, was it this guy? 
mm. this guy okay, yeah he's used his son's blood to help his aging thing and like really really if you can do it can everyone do it so yeah I'm, i can't wait to listen to that podcast enjoy enjoy how do you know have you listened to a podcast of his before not the no, i've not listened to the podcast i saw the it, it was in the news a while ago about the son's blood um to yeah live longer i didn't i didn't pay too much attention i have to say what's wild is that pe- people listen to that like what's wild is that there's an audience that people are going to listen to that and do some of that stuff and i just think this person is taking blood from his son and donating it to himself to to live potentially an extra month do do we really think that his advice on anything else is going to be remotely useful it's truly wild and yet obviously these types of people get loads of like listeners right otherwise they wouldn't be on podcasts multiple times but it's uh, intriguing sadly there's no um life enhancing oh there's life enhancing advice on this maybe not life prolonging oh exercise is life prolonging so yeah keep listening to the podcast we'll extend your life expectancy too with evidence-based ways um okay Anna do you want to go first uh yes I want to help more people not fall victim, oh, this is very topical, to the latest fads, influences, naming no names, but rhymes with Hector. <laughs> how can we explain to friends, family, etc., in basic terms, how they don't need to worry about testing blood glucose after every meal, etc., and they don't need to be afraid of eating carbs so they don't become confused with the messages going around on social media? Well, I have two articles on this on the website emilia.fitness and i would recommend that you read both of those articles one says something along the lines of podcast nutrition poo and one says something along the lines of somebody hector i imagine um so i would read those and and maybe send them like send them to friends family etc because i have explained it in pretty much layman's terms as i will always try and do um i kind of think sometimes it's almost it's not pointless but I think you can lose a lot of time trying to explain this sort of stuff in my experience with people like that I will usually just say that like the evidence is not there to support that like honestly there isn't a huge amount because because mechanistically it takes quite a lot of understanding to understand why or to be able to explain why measuring one point of blood glucose is unhelpful and why people who have a normal insulin response don't need to worry about that mechanistically it's quite difficult to explain so i wouldn't recommend that you go down that route honestly i would just say anyone who's evidence-based in the world of nutrition is like discrediting or not even discrediting this information but is highlighting that the evidence is not there yet to back up this this type of information and actually you know it can cause a bit of food preoccupation and it costs money and it's unhelpful that's really the extent to which I would explain it. Like, have you, have any of you had this conversation with anyone? I don't have the conversation. That's my answer. Yeah. yeah. It's very helpful, but it just isn't, I just, I don't feel like it's worth my energy because I feel like I'm fighting a lost battle for people that talk about it. They don't want to hear my opinion anyway. So I don't, but I know that's not the right approach always. So. No, I, I agree. Okay, Anna, um, Steph, go for it. 
Okie dokie. Um, how do you trust the voice in your head? I'm sick of being dependent on external validation, support or feedback. Mm. I think it comes a lot down to developing like self-esteem and self-worth because and, and also I suppose on the other side of that like unpacking all the reasons why you are dependent on this external stuff unpacking the reasons why you don't trust yourself that being said sometimes the voices in your head are not valid and like and that's a nice <laughs> Like sometimes the voices in your head are like calling you an idiot or running through worst case scenarios or catastrophizing and you don't want to necessarily trust those. You want to hear them. You know, it's okay to hear them and go and to reassure that you can hear them. But then you are not your thoughts. You are the listener of your thoughts. And then it's about, then it really is about that self-worth of, okay, I trust myself. And it's hard when you don't trust your gut You've been told that like every time you've trusted your gut in the past, you're being irrational, you're being dramatic. Like there's no science with trusting your gut, which there is some evidence around that, by the way. Um, it's very, very hard to then lean back into that. But I honestly think it takes a little bit of, well, a lot of practice of just checking in with yourself, having that little bit of, of a pause, slowing down and checking in with not like what are the thoughts in my head saying, but what do I actually feel in my body is the right decision or the right like action to take which is is probably not a very clear-cut answer uh, I, sorry I was going to say like to add to what you said earlier just of I've grown up trusting my gut like my mum's kind of instilled that in me from like when I was a child I really remember her being like why do you think like that and or you know trust it, that that is right if that feels right for you and even me that has grown up with that I still struggle with with this question as well. So it, it, sometimes it's it's really like you just said, it's not a clear cut answer. But I the only thing I would say is maybe start being um, selective of of feedback of of who you want to get feedback from because sometimes feedback is valuable, um, and external validation is valuable. But maybe you're depending on it because you're maybe asking everyone's opinion or you're maybe not setting a boundary like you know what they tell me their opinion but I don't really want to listen to it so there's a mixture of you know being selective which might be helpful at this point we all need a Julie in our lives don't we <laughs> Julie's great <laughs> <laughs> yeah I oh go ahead Anna well, I was just going to kind of go along the same lines as what you were saying, Amelia, and having that check in with your with your body, because I think when you're so used to not trusting yourself, it can be really hard to go like, okay, well, is is this gut instinct? And like for me, I always think like obviously I feel it in my gut, but it's more of like a pull and a softness. Whereas if there's something that I'm not a hundred percent sure about, there's a lot of tension. Um, yeah, I, I I like to think of it more of as a it's either a pull forward or a push back or down in that sense, and that's my sign to go. Yeah, no, trust yourself on this one. Mm. I like that. I'm always like, is it gut instinct? Is it anxiety? Is it an attachment trigger? <laughs> Those are the three questions I run through whenever I have a call, <laughs> and sometimes I get it wrong, but that's okay. And that's the thing too, like accept that you're going to make decisions that are maybe not right, or they are right because they're the right thing at the right time, but. They might you might end up making a decision and be like, oh my god, that was the wrong choice. 
Like it wasn't, it was the choice that felt like the right choice for you and it will take you in a different direction than maybe you had realised. Um, But allowing yourself to be wrong. Don't you think it's wild when you look at like the people that you used to take feedback from or or advice from and then you look at them, you look at them now and you're just like, interesting. And it could have been a stranger. It could have been, you know, an arsehole ex. It could have been any of these things. And you're like, gosh, wild that I thought that you knew me better than me. Or like wild that I thought this stranger on the internet had a better opinion of what I should be doing with my body than myself it's wild when you actually like take a step back and try and get that perspective as um just thinking of like when I was uh, in college like performing arts and your tutors are kind of treated like gods and I think that's why a lot of performers struggle with that internal validation because you are conditioned for that director choreographer etc to have the highest opinion of you so what they think matters because they're the gatekeeper for a job so it depends on like where you are in your in your job as well like there may be a reason why you seek external validation more than other people so don't feel guilty if you are uh, that kind of person interesting I actually remember my one of my best friends when I was at school uni she was at dance college and her one of her choreographers or, or teachers had come to like party thing that she was having and she didn't really eat properly at the time and she was like oh yeah but he like he's told me that like I should like I shouldn't be eating biscuits and I shouldn't be eating these things and I remember just being even then just being like like what an arsehole but that it was so just like well obviously I'm gonna do yeah Yeah. it was interesting Mm. okay Becca's client's question I'm wondering if other people have ever have an emotional reaction let's say toward a partner but the next day feel a bit ridiculous or anxious about it. I think for me, this comes under a lack of conviction and confidence in myself and how I'm feeling, which leads me to think that my reaction to something was quote unquote too much. Oh, oh. no, can't, can't relate at all. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I can't relate at all to that. No, I've got nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would say emotions like they're not they're not always rational anyway. Just to let like, and also, what I find interesting sometimes with these types of questions is like we judge our emotions, and we're human beings. We're going to feel a spectrum of feelings from time to time, and we like we, we might not get it right, quote unquote, in that moment maybe. But I don't know. The, the thing I would say is like maybe what you said in that question to us, maybe have that conversation with them. And communicate that because you might find that mutual understanding obviously we don't know the situation we don't know what the response was to etc so it's really hard to kind of give that clear answer but I think eye rolling it myself but communication is is massive isn't it so you know maybe just speak to them about it <laughs> why is communication on a podcast to clients <laughs> why is that so easy I, I'm always like that I'm like talk about it on here and then like my boyfriend will bring something up and I'm like nope yeah nope. <laughs> It's like, come on, you know what you're doing. So true. You have to, you have to, like, I practice in my head. I'm like, if if there has been something like that where you're like, mm, did I ever react? And then I like practice in my head before I say anything. I'm like, when you did this, it made me feel. So it's not a, you made me feel this. It's not an attack on them. It's like, so my response was valid because that's how I felt. <laughs> Mm. yeah but yeah practice in your head before (laughs) feel strong (laughs) feel confident yeah I'm going to take a totally kind of different approach to this just because I agree with 
what you both said. Um, we are very conditioned as women to feel that, or we're made to, we feel sometimes in response to things that we are too much. To be angry is like you're an angry and aggressive woman or you're too emotional because you showed anger because women aren't supposed to be angry. And for years and years and years, decades, women being angry and overly emotional are called hysterical. Back in the day, you could get put in, in a bloody asylum and get a hysterectomy because you were hysterical, because only women could be women could be hysterical. And so over time, like we have definitely internalized this narrative that to be feminine and to be a woman is to be soft and to respond not react and to just communicate our needs and rather rather than getting angry do you know what like sometimes you're allowed to be angry and you're really allowed to be pissed off and sometimes you're also allowed to be irritable and that's also okay and this is not I'm not saying that your partner has made you feel this way but you might have like once your anger has dissipated a little bit you might feel like this shame or like like embarrassment that you felt this sort of certain way which is a totally normal valid human emotion and especially when it comes to like relationships with food and body a lot of the time you struggle with these things because you don't allow yourself to feel things and maybe you're just starting to kind of actually feel things now and it's a really really positive thing and what you don't want to do is be like oh I'm sorry if I was too much or I'm sorry if I was angry like maybe you did overreact right maybe you did react rather than respond and, and say something silly or whatever apologize for sure but don't apologize for simply feeling angry in response to something that you were allowed to feel angry for. I think, so I think that's really important. It's hard to unpack, but having the conversations is important. And then the other thing is, and this is not this person, but for other people, maybe in these situations, and I don't know this person, but from what she said, it doesn't sound like it's this person. A lot of people in abusive relationships will will wake up feeling this way because their partner has, has made them, manipulated them to feel this way, that, they've gaslit them into sort of thinking there's not like why are you behaving like this you're crazy for thinking like this when really it's a totally valid experience and again human emotion and if you've definitely even if you've had relationships like this in the past where you have been made to feel like psychotic or overly emotional or dramatic for feeling a certain way that was totally valid in those past relationships and then you come into a new one that's not like that you can still feel that like questioning yourself of like was this is this the right emotion to feel or am I being again too emotional so I think curiosity about all of this stuff is important and again I'm certainly not saying that, that your partner is emotionally abusive in it by any stretch but it's always worth to be mindful of I think um how to manage chronic injury I love running and it really helps my headspace I had to cut back lots in HA recovery and since getting back into it my knees really can't handle it I'm doing physio for it but worried I'll never get back to proper running slash squatting etc again what else to do exercise wise to help headspace and get back to being able to run again I would say the exercise to help your headspace. So let's say you, you spend three times a week running or weightlifting and now you can't because of this injury. You've actually created yourself free time. So the things that you may struggle with, obviously I'm making a presumption here, maybe you struggle with mindfulness or mindful eating or breath work and this, that type of work. You've got an opportunity to, like if, if you're a bit time poor, to go actually 
what can I control? Oh, I can probably do this a little bit more this week up until, you know, the physio gives me the all clear. And I work with a lot of um, you know, ex-dancers or just general people that, you know, get injured because we, we do get injured. And I always like reframe it in that way. And, and actually some of the best work I've ever done with clients has been when they've been injured. And it's because they've actually had to force themselves to, to do the work that really helps like with self-regulation and you know getting feeling a bit more in tune with with how they feel so I don't know if that's a bit of a reframe maybe to have but yeah I mean it is a struggle to when you when you are injured it's it's frustrating and like we said in previous questions like allow yourself to feel frustrated it's annoying but sometimes we have to kind of parent ourselves and go right well what can I do right now that's supportive because if I'm just going to carry on winding myself up that's not going to make me recover quicker um so maybe having that chat with yourself I agree again I'm going to take a bit of a different approach to this and sort of say like you said Steph everyone gets injured sometimes and there are certain lifts that I haven't been able to do for years I haven't squatted in years I haven't deadlifted in years I've only just started doing pull-ups and now my elbow's absolutely damned so I'm probably not going to be doing pull-ups again um and 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 to some degree like yes I don't mean like except being injured and you're always just gonna be injured and that's it work on again like you said Steph like work on what you can but ultimately as you get older and as you if as somebody who exercises things are going to come up and this is quite normal and don't internalize it as like this is a you thing and this is going to change your entire life and it sucks when you love it like it really does but I used to love deadlifting I used to love squatting which now makes me feel uncomfortable because I would hate it now but point is you get used that you get used to it like you you get used to whatever you're able to do if you just go okay well this is what it is for right now it sucks um I recognize that it sucks but what can, like what can you change because like a lot of the pain that you're create is the pain that you're creating by being frustrated that you can't do it rather than the actual like reality of it as it is and and I, and not to minimize it because again I totally know how frustrating it is but some people live in chronic pain and, and can't lift at all some people are disabled and or or are living in less able bodies so that they can't do these things and how lucky you are to still be able to do so much other stuff and it doesn't it doesn't negate the heart the shitness right of you not being able to do those things 100 but can you practice gratitude for the functionality of your body and the fact that your body is still there showing up doing other things because so many people are not able to do those things and i think sometimes imagine it all got taken away Sometimes that can be really helpful for gratitude because you get used to it. Like imagine you can like imagine you can walk. Like, and th- and that's really, really drastic. But sometimes with gratitude, a, a helpful way to frame it is like, well, what if I didn't have that at all? And then you really are like, okay, I can be grateful for that. Is it me? Yeah. Yeah. Um how to strike the balance between letting yourself feel the feelings versus being in your own head and wallowing too much looking at this another way tension between trying to be positive and cracking on in brackets mood follows action mindset versus not addressing your emotions and using distraction or unhealthy coping mechanisms example food control 
I mean, for me, this would be a prime time for like, grief tunneling, isn't it? Where, I mean, not, ju not just for grief, but any kind of uncomfortable feelings where you can say, right, I'm giving myself this amount of time. It might be like 20 minutes when you're out for your walk where you can go, right, this is my time to sit or walk <laughs> with these thoughts, with these feelings. And then after that point, I'm going to like move on and not let it take over or consume the rest of my day and maybe kind of doing that for a week or so. So you're giving yourself that space. You have that comfort in knowing like each day I can come back to it. But that reminder that actually at that end point of that allotted time, that's when you focus on being present again. Yeah, I think being mindful of how much it's impacting other parts of your life is probably quite important. Like, and you also have to try it out. So if you're you're unable to do your work and you are canceling plans with friends for weeks on end, all of this stuff for weeks on end, I mean, look, you might be going through some in, in, intense grief and that might be the right response for you at that time, right? But tr try and keep a bit of perspective about what it is that's going on for you. Um. And then I think noticing if how much it is impacting other parts of your life and, and holding yourself accountable to, to maybe pulling back if it's if if it's drastically impacting other parts of your life. I think though the answer really is testing it out. It's the same sort of thing with like boundaries and stuff. When you start setting boundaries, sometimes people are like, Oh, these are my boundaries and that's it. And you start doing like a bloody Jonah Hill of like, my boundary is that you have to not ever speak to another man again, and that's just my boundary, and that's how you are, right? <laughs> folks sometimes go down that road when they're trying to figure out how to set boundaries and the same thing is true for this like you probably will at some point maybe go a little bit into like that wallowing that wallowing part but because you're doing this work you'll then get out of that and you'll recognize oh maybe I sat in that for just a little bit too long and maybe it impacted me a little bit because it stopped me from doing other things so next time I'm just going to be mindful of the wallowing and and see what happens it's kind of there's no I would love it if there was a quantifiable thing of like, you should grieve for 4.6 days if you are going through a breakup of five days or less. Like, it would be amazing if there was that, but that just doesn't exist. So I think it's just a, for you, it's about staying aware and curious about, you know, the impact that that is having on your life. And what I love about emotional eating and binge eating and, and these things is that disordered, disordered eating habits and on the whole is, or exercise or body image, is that they are little like torches. So if you start to find that like you've been like, you're, you're like, oh, I'm weirdly fine after this breakup. And then you start to find that you're exercising a lot or you start to find that you're like kind of overeating again. It's like, oh, interesting. That's like a little shine in a torch of like, maybe I'm not fine. Maybe I need to feel a bit more. And then the same thing can be happen like on the other side. I love that torchlight thing. <laughs> Thanks. The thing I would add is um, like ask yourself as well, maybe reflect on is it, have you got like a bit of a pattern of let's say wallowing or getting in, into your own head? Does it happen a lot or are you just adjusting to what's just happened? Um, like sometimes it can be as simple as like something drastic or there's maybe it wasn't drastic, but it has changed your lifestyle a little bit. And that's why you're getting in your own head. And like maybe you just need to get a bit of, gain a bit of perspective on the situation and remember like balance I think you said balance in that first part of the question that balance can shift so our priorities can shift and like you say experiment yeah I think just remembering 
that decision you make it doesn't have to be like a final one you can like you say just experiment with these things is it okay to cut out a certain food if it doesn't make you feel good from the inside without this being seen as a restriction of foods Right. It's a hard one, no, because I don't like. I naturally am going to try and unpick this and be like, oh well. In what way does it not make you feel good on the inside? Is it physically? It doesn't make you feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I would say unless it's kind of avoid a food that you've typically avoided and it might just be your body getting used to it then yeah okay don't eat the stuff that doesn't make you feel great on the inside but if it's kind of or it doesn't make me feel great on the inside because I feel like I shouldn't be eating it and there's some guilt and it's showing up in like physical sensations then it would be okay well maybe maybe that's the time where no I'm going to lean into it and let my body know that it's okay to have these foods Mm -hmm. Just taking it at like face value, I'd be like, yeah. I always think of uh, Trav because he's got a very, you know, good relationship with food. He always has, but some foods make him feel like he has a tummy ache, and he's been tested for celiac, so many different things, and there's there's just never been an answer for it. But when he says, "Oh, I'm not going to eat that," like I don't go, "Well, you should," because you know your blood test came back normal, and you know, <laughs> like no, like some people know their bodies quite well, and they just know when they're going to feel a certain way, and. I don't think we need to overanalyze it, but I, uh, from our lens, it, it can be useful mm. to analyze it for sure. Yeah, absolutely that. I don't eat chickpeas because they don't make me feel good from the inside, and they make me pump all night. So, I, but <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't not eat them. I just, <laughs> I just restrict them a little bit out of empowered choice. And my boyfriend, and, and then I, when you're home alone, quite happily chow down. <laughs> One of my favourite recipes is Lucy Lord's like chickpea peanut butter coconut curry. Oh, thing. the curry! Yeah, and I'm obsessed with it. And then, I, but like, and I'll make it <laughs> just for me. But I can't make it if I'm like with my boyfriend because. <laughs> but there's nothing disordered about that. That's just sensible, you know. Um, but that being said, you know, when I started eating food like these, like grains, pulses, higher fibre foods, etc., when I like when I were coming from a restrictive background for sure like your gut does take time to adapt and my response to chickpeas now is probably drastically lower than my response to chickpeas when I'd been restricted and hadn't seen a chickpea for about 10 years so yeah important point the restriction not the pumping (laughs) (laughs) title of the podcast please (laughs) (laughs) okay I am apprehensive about leaving the house if I haven't eaten recently. I feel, sorry, I fear that I will get really hungry and there won't be anything I should eat available. I know that this is irrational. How can I be more comfortable with being hungry? Is it normal to be up for it? Oh, that's a separate question. Sorry. Is it normal to be up for it? Probably not. Not in my world. (laughs) Um... Yeah, no. Okay, so it's like the fear of being hungry and not having fear of being hungry, not having foods that I that should be eating, um, and how to be more comfortable with being hungry. So this is very uh, early on working together. 
Oh, oh. <laughs> deep breath. Who's going to go first? Um, I'll just go with my first thought. Um, sometimes we get fear of hunger because we have subconscious food rules. So we might tell ourselves like, well, I don't know what I'll be eating. I definitely can't be eating X, Y, Z. So I'm going to be hungry because I can't eat. And that might drive the urgency of that food as well, might create anxiety, hunger, whatever. So sometimes like unpicking the fear of hunger is probably due to something else, which is around obviously around food and the fear of it. Maybe working on food rules um, will be helpful. And we do this thing, and I know you mentioned she's early on, but working with or sitting with mild hunger and knowing that nothing bad happens and just getting used to that and just, you know, even if it even if you feel like it does something does happen after that, it's kind of like um it's awareness of that situation. So what you're doing at this point is just becoming more aware of these triggers and why you feel that way. But yeah, back to my first point, I think it might be <laughs> bit of a tangent for you there my, my Steph brain is working its finest today but yeah I would look at fear foods first yeah you're so ba- like I think you're so bang on like in everything that you said because it's like that there's no foods that I should eat what foods should you eat what foods shouldn't you eat and that just that kind of should we talk about a lot in terms of it's a bit of a highlight on oh maybe there are some food rules or lack of kind of that black and white thinking around certain foods um I think like learning to who was it? one of my clients every day she was talking about how she would like so she's moved on from eating regularly and is now much more eating much more intuitively and still pretty regularly obviously because that was is what makes her feel good but she was saying you know it got to a time where I would normally eat and she said I really wasn't hungry and she said so I just let myself have like a baby bell and an apple for a snack and it was just a great snack and I thought I bloody love that snack sometimes with a wee bit of PB too. But I thought back to like, you know, and and, and she, she gave me that example because it was the same for her. Like past, it would be like, no, you either have a meal or you have a snack with protein. You don't just have like picky bits. You don't just have like a few baby bell and some apple and then that's it to tidy over till your next meal. You, It's either a meal or it's not because you demonize this kind of snacky behavior. And I think learning to get comfortable with snacky behavior sometimes, if, I, if I'm if i like, so for example, I'm going out for dinner tonight and I don't have time to have like a proper meal, but I'll be starving and I don't want to be, so I'm going to take some baby bells for the car and probably an apple. So that's my snacky for the car to tide me over. Uh, snacky is a disgusting word. I was like, like kind of give myself the ick. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but the point is still there. So I think just trying to like work on those those little food rules that you that you have that you don't even realize no are you laughing (laughs) (laughs) nothing like worse than like when watching other people like trying to hold in their laughter (laughs) you make me laugh now (laughs) no i i think like you say there is that struggle with just allowing yourself like I I mean it's such a like you know like the the girl dinner things and like picky bits and <laughs> stuff and her snacky snacks like. <laughs> but just allowing yourself that flexibility to go yeah do you know what it might not be what I typically choose but I'm going to have something because I know it will serve me and trying to get into that mindset as well agree Steph oh 
Oh, it's my question. If you have identified your values and genuinely excited to work towards becoming that person, why do I self-sabotage or even how do I stay consistent to become her? Well, I did an entire episode on 10 reasons why you self-sabotage and how to overcome it. Episode number 214 of this podcast. Um, So have a listen to that. And that will basically tell you everything that you need to know. Um, people people quote, quote self-sabotage for a lot of reasons. And, and, you know, we have this discussion sometimes about maybe not loving that phrase of self-sabotage. And maybe it's some sort of, you know, self-preservation or self-protection or some sort of way that you're trying to keep yourself safe or comfortable or in a familiar, quote, unquote, safe space. And when you frame it like that, sometimes it's a bit easier to kind of unpack it. Um, but there are lots of reasons why somebody might fall into that, a fear of achieve, achieving or not feeling that you're worthy of achieving or having this idea that you're going to be happy when you do achieve it. And as you get closer to it, your happiness doesn't change because actually your happiness is not dependent on that thing that you've put all of your happiness waiting on. Or, you know, you are scared to be too much for someone else because you, what what happens if, what if you're in a relationship and, and you change? what does that mean for your relationship and there are lots of reasons I think everyone kind of a lot of people like will kind of diminish it to oh you're scared of success so you self-sabotage or you procrastinate or whatever um and I don't think it's I don't think it's that simple hence why I did a 10 reasons why you might self-sabotage podcast okay Dealing with shame and anxiety around weight gain when visiting people, i.e. family, I haven't seen in a while. What are the stories that you're telling yourself? Like, Obviously, we have grown up to think that gaining weight is this bad thing. But visiting those people that are closest to you, like reflect on it. What is it that what is it that they are loving about you? Um because chances are it has absolutely nothing to do with your body. I think sometimes this can be challenging for some people um whose families really do comment on weight or culturally there's a big emphasis on bodies and body weight. Um or societally in that space like there's definitely in certain families or certain cultures there's definitely more of an emphasis on this and it can be really you know my my family wouldn't comment or make an obvious comment about my weight right but I've I've worked with people in the past who like their parents will outright say you've you've got fat or you've gained fat or you've lost too much weight or you look unhealthy or you look healthy and and sometimes it is meant in the way that it's said and sometimes it's meant in a helpful way um and it's well-intentioned and I think so I think if you've got if you're living with that fear of them commenting then it really is about okay can I set this boundary with them before I go and when we're in a calm chill space we're chatting on Sunday night can can I articulate this beforehand but I think also in those situations you've got a couple of choices of people if you're if you if you don't feel comfortable to set the boundary you don't spend time with those people or you learn to say okay well, this is the best that they can do but this has got nothing to do with me and I'm going to try and let that comment wash over my head 
and you can't you can train yourself to do that there are certain people in my life that I know will always say certain things about things that I definitely disagree with or things that I could find triggering and I I just learned to go to try my best to at least to kind of breathe through it and almost pretend it didn't happen and then just crack on and I think that can sometimes be quite helpful and it's not like a denial but it's like is that worth is that worth arguing about or taking on board or not seeing this person for probably probably not but but it might be for you especially if it's a consistent thing so you know you have to just go in with an intention beforehand know if you need to have that discussion beforehand and then choose how you're going to respond to it because you can't control other people Uh, back to me um with the holiday season and then new year's approaching we know that the diet talk karens will be rampant what's everyone's best advice for dealing with it i would probably at this point be like i find diet talk really boring can we change the subject like i would be really honest and just be like this is honestly this is boring me senseless and i would say that but i feel like i'm probably at a point where i just I genuinely just don't give a crap. So <laughs> like if you're talking about dieting like on a on a work night out or in in the staff room at work on your one lunch break, that is I probably don't want to hang out with you. <laughs> yeah. There's I mean there's like three ways you can respond to it, isn't there? Because there's you can actively involve yourself in the conversation and you maybe you disagree and you voice that and you're gonna get some people respond to you and they won't agree with you and that's just life two you don't like actively get in the conversation and let it brush over you or three you just go I don't really want this chat I don't find it helpful for where I'm at right now and set that boundary I don't really know if there's any other options to take really and it's just which one is right for you in that moment three okay Steph go is it me right sorry when in the sticky middle part it feels impossible to focus on all aspects i.e eating the right amount but not too much while trying to feel proud of things whilst also trying to be compassionate but slow progress is okay right question mark exclamation mark (laughs) (laughs) oh what was it what was it was it sticky that's what she said. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, this this is just it, right? Like, and we always say, like, there is there is no timeline for this. We're not expecting you to be at certain places by certain points, and I think that's so important to keep in mind. Like, reflect on kind of the progress that you are making individually enjoy the messiness of it all accept that it's going to be imperfect and it's going to be feel overwhelming at times and feel a little bit tough but know that each day when you're making those actions you're supporting yourself long term like who said it's slow like who said your pace is actually not fast Mm -hmm. what are you comparing it to because you we'll never share an entire person's journey exact times um no no one starts at exactly the same time um so how do you know it's slow 
Mä solahasin siihen. Okei. It's me. Um, why when I recognize how much better I feel when eating well, exercising and being mindful, do I stop doing all of these things? Revert back to the self-sabotage podcast reference. I honestly think that's we could we could go through all of that again, but I I really think that actually listening to that podcast is is the answer. Mm. Unless you two have got anything really insightful to say to that, which you may do. But I think as well, like it, like we often do these things to get us feeling a certain way, like whether it is by eating regularly whether it is training, whether it's your habits, like your meditation, your journaling. And then as soon as you get to that point of feeling good, it's like, well, I'm here now. I can like take the foot off the gas and just kind of ease back on a few things. And it's like, no, no, this is why that consistency is so important because they keep you feeling that way um, and holding yourself a bit more accountable to it in that sense as well. Yeah, I think when it comes to fat loss, like we do put so much weight on fat loss as if it's this magical thing that when we feel, when we lose this weight, we're finally going to feel comfortable in our body and we're finally going to go on dates and we're finally going to go for those jobs and we're life is going to be absolutely perfect when we've dropped body fat. And you can you could listen to this and be like, obviously that's not true. That's obviously not what I think. But actually, if you really think about it, what are you attributing to changing your body? And what, because if those things are not changing as you go through the process, you're going to freak out as you get closer to that quote-unquote end point um and if you're not feeling happy if you're not reaching that waiting then you are probably going to start moving away from it so that you don't have to deal with the fact that actually you need to take action in other parts of your life um do you ever find food is a way of holding you back in some way like the overconsumption keeps you at the same level to keep you safe. Could your relationship with food tie into a fear of success? Gosh, this wasn't even planned today. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Everything that we've already said, I think, is exactly applicable to, to this person. Um, it's okay that overeating feels safe to you. Like there's lots of reasons why it might feel safe to you. It might be something to do with keeping you in a certain body size. It might be that it's been a consistent for you when everything else has been inconsistent for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So it feels comforting. It feels safe. Um, And something that we did on the binge breakthrough call on Wednesday night was actually looking at the role that overeating has played for everyone and allowing ourselves to be thankful for that. So I would encourage you to look at the role that overeating's played for you if it feels like it's kept you safe. And if you can, just sit with it, like do a little bit of breathing first, ground yourself and almost like visualize that part, that part of yourself and say like, you know, like, thank you for keeping me safe. Thank you for being such an important role in my life for so long. And now I feel able to now deal with this feeling of unsafety myself. And now I feel ready to, to find other tools as well to help me manage that um again it's a lot easier to let something go when we're not just trying to constantly resist it but we're actually facing it head on and, and compassionately and you know just accepting what it's done so I think amazing awareness that you can see that and um yeah try try something like that 
Mia. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on Zoe, which is launching in the UK in July? This was quite a while ago. Uh, seems interesting and quite health focused, including mental health and avoids counting calories. Yeah, I mean, I've written two articles on it, which again, back to the start of this podcast, um, I've written two articles on on that type of information. Realistically, in a nutshell, the evidence isn't there to support quote unquote personalized nutrition in that way. There's there, the evidence is not there to say on an individual level, looking at someone's poo is going to say what they should eat. Also, your gut microbiome responds to what you eat, like you've eaten. So similar to like, it's not the same, but it like with intolerance tests, it would say that I was intolerant to bread because I've just eaten bread because your body releases, like your body, what they're measuring changes in response to what you eat. And it's not the same, but in a similar sort of vein, your gut microbiome responds to what you've been eating. Um, not only that, your poo is not directly comparable to your gut. And we're using for a lot of these things who as a proxy for gut. So and it's that it, it, they're not sufficiently comparable to say that that's a valid measurement tool. Um, on top of that, the blood glucose stuff, again, no evidence to say that that's helpful for people who are, um, who have normal blood glucose levels and insulin responses. It's, it's just not there. And, Moreover, even in people that do have insulin impaired insulin sensitivity, one point of blood glucose doesn't is not sufficient to change the way that we do things. And I, I don't know how many points they ask you to measure. But when I wrote this article, I, I referenced this journalist who said she'd started measuring her blood glucose and said that she, you know, was becoming obsessed with measuring her blood glucose after every meal. That to me is more stressful i.e. stress then by the way impacts your blood glucose response than just thinking okay well I've got impaired insulin sensitivity so I'm going to take a walk after my meal that is infinitely healthier than measuring your blood glucose and then changing the order in which you eat your food if you if again if you have diabetes or actually people who are in who are who are not in larger bodies but who have type 2 diabetes some slight meal ordering could potentially be helpful because actually there are other things that they maybe can't, that's not beneficial for them to do. But um, no, on a on an individual level, the evidence for this type of diet is not there. And I think it's important to remember that these people are making millions and millions of pounds of people doing this. And the evidence isn't there. And the same people who head up these this are people who are saying that you should only buy organic oats and that non-organic oats are really bad for you. And realistically do we really want to be taking dietary advice from someone who's demonizing giving your kids oats for breakfast like it's it, it pisses me off because of how elitist and privileged it is and it's and if it worked or if it was evidence-based then I'd be like okay it's elitist and evidence-based but at least it it works for the people that can that have access to that but if it works it's only because people are focusing on what is effectively overall healthful guidelines, eating more plant-based foods, eating a wide variety of these, eating more fiber. Um, those That's what ends up happening when you follow one of these types of diets, ultimately, because you become more aware of what you're eating. And that's why you get the benefits of it. Not because you've excluded, I don't know, an ultra-processed food because it came up in your poo sample. Like we know we should reduce our consumption of ultra-processed foods. 
all of that dietary information you can get for free by listening to this podcast, not spending loads of money getting your poo sent off and being told to exclude one food that realistically you probably just wouldn't eat that much of anyway if you were following an overall healthful diet. So that was my that was that was a quite a calm response from me to be honest because I feel like I've spoken about it too many times. Um, but again, I've got those articles on my website, our website, if you want to have a look. I um, actually had a client that did it because they paid for it. And obviously, I think it is quite a lot of money, isn't it? Um, They paid for it before they started working with me. So the week that it started, I don't know if this makes sense to anyone that's done it. Um, She ended up doing it for that week or something. And after she sent everything off and her week, her check-in, so she improved her relationship with food. That was going steadily really well. This week happened where she went into that sort of Zoe mode and the check-in after that she actually said I feel like I've made a mistake I felt awful and listed lots of different things of why that was so I don't know if I'm talking from a bit of a bias here or from my client's lens but it just doesn't sound very helpful for certain people um, and especially the people I tend to work with and, and we tend to work with sometimes it, it just doesn't sound what, what you need yeah. really yeah you're right it's just orthorexia packaged up in a different way yeah, it's glad. and what amazes me is that the same people like let's take Jamila Jamil who I think she's an incredible woman I, I really like a lot of what she does but she's very anti-diet and then she had the glucose goddess on her podcast and mm-hmm. I just think this person is doing the same thing as diet culture does but it's done in a different way in an orthorexic way and we're glamorizing that now and it does amaze me that a lot of the people who are anti-diet are pro this sort of bullshit and yeah, it's it's frustrating. I just think it's the new diet culture. It's just creating all of these orthorexic tendencies. And if you struggle with dysfunctional eating and then you add in this type of hierarchy and morality around food, it's it's not going to end well. And that's not a fault of yours. Like you're saying, Steph, it's, you can do all of that work, but it's like it's like people are glamorizing doing it. So you're like, well, maybe I should do that. Um, you should not do that. Okay, we're going to leave it there on that such positive note. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Thank you both so much. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, if you did, please do feel free to like, share, subscribe and review. And if you would like to chat to me, then you can find details of my Instagram in the show notes.